From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Antibiotics. They're important drugs in treating bacterial infections and preventing the spread of disease. But drugs that used to be standard treatments for bacterial infections are now, unfortunately, less effective or they don't work at all because of overuse and misuse of these drugs, which has led to organisms developing antibiotic resistance. On today's Mayo Clinic radio program, we'll discuss antibiotic resistance and allergies with a Mayo Clinic infectious disease expert. Also on the program, rethinking the annual exam. Should you still see your doctor every year? And how health care costs affect patient decision making. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Antibiotics have been used for more than 70 years to treat patients who have infectious diseases. And talk about success. Since the 1940s, antibiotics have saved countless lives and cured, well, literally millions of infections. But... Antibiotics have been used so widely and for so long that now the organisms the antibiotics are designed to kill, well, they've adapted. You know, these bugs are actually pretty smart. They're so tricky. And that has made the drugs, unfortunately, less effective. Mm -hmm. And there are some bacteria that are resistant to almost all of the high-powered antibiotics we've got. That's troubling. Yeah. Yeah. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, each year in the U.S., at least 2 million people become infected with bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics, and at least 23,000 people die each year as a direct result of those infections. Here to discuss antibiotic resistance is Mayo Clinic Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Napuni Rajapaksi. Welcome back to the program. It's great to see you. Thanks. It's great to be back. So we've got a problem, don't we? Uh, resistant bugs that their antibiotics are having difficulty treating. Yeah, you know, we're starting to see this more and more now, and it's becoming more and more common, and it's going to continue to become a bigger and bigger issue as we go along here. Um, We're seeing this affecting people across the lifespan, from kids to the elderly. And we think we have a reasonably good handle of what is causing this, so the real issue now is putting measures into place to see what we can do to slow down the process. Not a lot makes me really nervous when we do these radio interviews, but (laughs) this this one does, because I always feel like it's a movie waiting to write itself. Yeah, you know, we've been uh, pretty lucky so far in being able to uh, develop new antibiotics and new ways to outsmart these bacteria, but they're they're really smart and they're uh, changing at a pace that it's really difficult for us to keep up with to develop new drugs. So we're seeing fewer and fewer new antibiotics being developed, and so we're having to come up with strategies to preserve the use of the antibiotics that we have in our toolkit right now. You, you said that you, you were pretty certain that you had a handle on what the causes uh, were. So what are they? Yeah, so it's a very complicated issue, but uh, we do know that the biggest driver of uh, the development of resistance in bacteria, as well as other types of microorganisms, is the overuse of antibiotics. And so we know that antibiotics are amongst the most frequently prescribed medications to humans, also to animals in the agricultural industry as well. And so that's been kind of identified as the top reason for the issues that we're running into now. Not overprescription for humans, but overuse in the agricultural? So both. So both overprescription to humans as well as uh, use in the agricultural industry. Um, We know that 
when you expose bacteria to antibiotics, part of their evolutionary strategy is to survive, and so they can develop mutations that uh, allow them to resist those antibiotics or develop resistance. And so as you have that process happening over time and in uh, many different people and many different animals across the world, um, you start to see that bacteria that used to be quite sensitive to the antibiotics that we have are now developing resistance. Maybe I'm on, I get sick and I'm on an antibiotic for 7 to 10 days, but I'm eating food every day. And if I'm eating food that has antibiotics in it every day, is that a bigger deal? Or is it that it's such a small amount that it's a less important deal? So both issues are uh, important. I don't think we truly know how much each contributes Mm. to the overlying issue because it's so complex and you have this occurring uh, across the world. Um, But we do know that we need to tackle this problem in multiple different ways. So that means uh, things targeted towards prescription of antibiotics and humans taking antibiotics, but also um, strategies in the veterinary and agricultural industry to uh, decrease the use and potentially eliminate the use of uh, antibiotics in those groups. Why do you think it is that antibiotics historically have been so overprescribed? So that's a, it's a good question, and it's very complicated. There are a lot of people doing research into figure out why is it that we've uh, gotten to this situation now. Um, there are a lot of different factors that go into a decision to prescribe antibiotics for a patient. We sit across from patients each day and have complex uh, discussions about patients' symptoms and conditions and try and come to a consensus as to what the best path forward is for them. Um, But uh, sometimes there are uh, other factors outside of what is recommended in guidelines or the symptoms that the patient has that plays a role in deciding to prescribe. Um, We do know that it can be very difficult sometimes in an emergency department or in a clinic setting to distinguish the patient that has a viral infection from a bacterial infection. Uh, We have some tests that can help us with that as well, but it can be challenging. And um, often there's kind of a mentality both from parents and from patients and from physicians as well that sometimes the safe thing to do for a certain condition is to prescribe an antibiotic even though the most likely cause is viral. And as we know, uh, antibiotics really have no effect at all against viruses. And so in those situations, we know that um, the risks of taking an antibiotic outweigh any sort of benefit that the patient has, um, both in terms of uh, side effects, but also for this greater issue of resistance in the population. And it makes the mother or the patient think you're doing something. Yeah. Don't you think that's a big part of it? I oh, think huge. for sure. Um, it's it's a... Difficult to sit there and say, you have a viral infection, there's nothing I can give you really Mm -hmm. to help you to uh, kill off that virus, aside from your immune system kicking in to help you to feel better. But there are other things that physicians can uh, recommend, uh, what we call symptomatic treatment, so whether that's... uh, it's not the same. Acetaminophen nope. or well, ibuprofen well, for an ear infection. Sure. Things is like it that. then, is it just people are imagining that they feel better if they get this? Uh, is it the placebo effect? They have a virus, but you, the mom says, my kid really needs an antibiotic. Does the antibiotic not help the child feel better at all? We just think that it does? So if you have a virus, an antibiotic will not help you get better. It has no activity against a virus. But we know the natural history of viral infections is usually you'll feel pretty bad for anywhere from three days to a week and then start to feel better on your own. Usually that's around the time that you start an antibiotic, so probably just the viral infection getting better on its own. So why did they ever think that we should give out antibiotics? For Did they just think, oh, there's probably not a big harm? 
to hand out. It makes people feel like they're feeling better. Uh, so that's why that was ever started in the first place. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of it, uh, it's, as I said, it's very co- complicated, but uh, part of it is this just in case, just in case there may be an early bacterial infection or something like that. Um, physicians are uh, seeming to prescribe antibiotics to this group. Can a viral infection tr- become a bacterial infection if you don't get better, if you don't take care of it? So a small proportion of people with a viral respiratory tract infection can go on to develop what we call a bacterial superinfection after that. Um, so that can be things like a pneumonia or sinus infection or ear infection. However, treating them when they just have signs of the viral infection with an antibiotic does nothing to prevent or uh, decrease their chance of going on to develop that type of infection. So give us some examples of typical viral illnesses that in general, should not be treated with antibiotics. Now, you know, it's not clear-cut, but to give us some examples, of, like mono, for I was thinking of. Sure, yeah. So, for sure, uh, things like mono, so that usually presents with uh, fever, uh, fatigue, enlarged lymph nodes, sometimes sore throat. Um, there's no benefit to receiving an antibiotic for that. It does nothing for uh, the viruses that, that cause mono. Uh, the common cold, so uh, upper respiratory tract symptoms like uh, runny nose, cough, Um, That, again, is a viral syndrome, and so antibiotics will be of no benefit. Um, Many, many uh, sore throats, so probably 95% of sore throats are viral in origin and not related to strep, which is the most common bacterial cause of sore throat. And so uh, sore throat, especially if it's associated with a runny nose or cough or viral-type rash, really shouldn't be treated uh, with antibiotics. And if someone does think that strep is a possibility, they should always get a throat swab first to confirm that the strep bacteria is there before. And not give the antibiotic unless it's positive. Yes, that is correct. Ear infections in kids always used to get antibiotics. Yeah, so many um, ear infections uh, are associated with uh, viral syndromes. It's really important if a physician is uh, diagnosing a true otitis media or um, ear infection. The current recommendations from the American Academy of uh, Pediatrics are that for a vast majority of kids, what we call watchful waiting is uh, appropriate. So that means you can wait a couple of days to see if the child gets better on their own and then initiate an antibiotic at that point if not. What we need is a good antiviral drug. <laughs> yes. And then we've got for, something to give them cold. other than an antibiotic, right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> All right, we've been talking about antibiotic resistance with infectious disease specialist Dr. Napuni Rajapaksi. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll dive into another topic, but not unrelated, antibiotic allergies, including this myth or matter of fact. A nine out of ten people who think they have a penicillin allergy really don't. We'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is Dr. Nipuni Rajapaksi. She is an infectious disease specialist. We've been talking about antibiotic resistance and all the bugs that have now started to outsmart the antibiotics. But time to switch gears. We're going to talk about allergies to antibiotics, and we're going to start out with that myth or matter of fact. Interesting. Yeah, myth or matter of fact. Nine out of ten people who think they have a penicillin allergy really don't. Is that a myth or is that a fact? That is a fact. So studies have shown that a vast majority of patients who think they're allergic to penicillin, the most commonly reported uh, type of antibiotic allergy, actually are not. Well, someone must have told them along the way that they were, or did they... How did they get that wrong? Yeah. 
Yeah, so there's a, a few different scenarios that we commonly run into uh, when it comes to antibiotic allergies. Um, one common scenario is that the person had some sort of event when taking an antibiotic, usually as a young child, um, so they can't recall the event themselves, but they were told by their parent or their parent was told by their physician that they were allergic to this antibiotic and they shouldn't take it again. Um, and the second uh, kind of common scenario is that... Uh, Symptoms which are not uh, related to an allergy, so common things like uh, abdominal pain, uh, nausea, or diarrhea uh, that people commonly have while taking an antibiotic are thought to be a sign of an allergy, and so they report being allergic to those medications. So that's what's happening that makes people think that they have an allergy. It's just some sort of reaction, and then they say, oh, penicillin it. Allergy. Exactly. So huh. it's important to distinguish between having an allergy to something and having a side effect from a medication. So uh, commonly in patients that we prescribe antibiotics for, um, we do see it, they can cause uh, some uh, stomach upset, some cramping, diarrhea, or non-hives type rashes. So what does a true penicillin allergy look like? So the things that we always uh, ask our patients to uh, look out for. There's a spectrum of uh, symptoms that can present as allergy. Um, the most severe type of allergy that we all uh, worry about and hear about is something called anaphylaxis. That usually presents um, in a few different ways, but the common symptoms being uh, hives-type uh, itchy rash, um, uh, breathing difficulties, swelling of the airway, um, or dangerously low blood pressure. That and does that happen when you take the first dose? So um, it, uh, it's a bit complicated. It's pretty unusual for it to happen with the first dose okay. just because uh, usually you have to be sensitized to the uh, antibiotic okay. before, but um, that doesn't go for, for all scenarios necessarily. Um, and then, as I said, there's kind of a spectrum. So even uh, just a hives-type rash developing after exposure to an antibiotic could be a sign that you may be um, developing a more severe uh, allergic-type reaction if you go on to be exposed to that. Is there a way you can tell for sure if you're allergic to a particular antibiotic without taking the antibiotic? So that's a great question. Um, There is skin testing that can be done, usually by allergy specialists, uh, to see if you're allergic to a penicillin. Um, So what we would encourage for uh, patients who think that they may be allergic and are not quite sure is to talk to their uh, primary physician, uh, discuss what their symptoms were, and if they feel it's warranted, they may be a candidate to have allergy skin testing done. But 9 out of 10, that's a lot of people that think that they're allergic to penicillin. Is Does that mean that really I don't have this and now I can use it? Is it penicillin is becoming more widely used now? Uh, it seems like nobody uses penicillin anymore. So if 9 out of 10 think they're <laughs> allergic to it, that's why. <laughs> so uh, the antibiotic penicillin itself, so there's an antibiotic called penicillin. There's a family of antibiotics called penicillin. Oh. Um, and so that family of antibiotics is very commonly used. And so generally, if you report an allergy to um, one Uh, antibiotic within that family, people will not prescribe you something else within the entire family. And uh, these are antibiotics that are usually the first line or first choice antibiotics for treatment of many common infections. And so the reason why it's so important to uh, really sort out this issue is that when we start going to what we call a second or third line or choice antibiotics for uh, management of these infections, they're often not as effective as the first choice. They're often more toxic than the first choice, and they're often more expensive than the first choice antibiotics. And so we really don't want to be giving those antibiotics to patients unless we truly believe that they are allergic to the first choice ones. Can people develop an allergy to penicillin as they get older, or can they have it when they're young and outgrow it? Can that happen? It is possible over a long period of time to outgrow uh, 
penicillin allergy. Um, and you can develop a penicillin allergy even if you've taken it successfully without any issues for multiple courses. Is that common? Um, I would say those are less common scenarios. If you think uh, that the story about uh, allergy or, uh, to penicillin is suspect, do you recommend that they get skin tes- tested? Yeah, so it uh, depends a bit on the specific patient scenario, especially if they're a type of patient with an underlying medical condition where I would uh, predict that they'll probably need to be treated for infections multiple times in their future. Those patients, for sure, we always like to do what we can to sort out whether they truly are um, allergic or not. Um, other patients, depending on the story of what happened when they took the antibiotic, this, we may be able to just tell from the story itself that this was not an allergy and counsel them for that. The ones that fall in the gray area are a bit, bit more difficult to tease out. As a consumer or as a mother, what do you recommend that that we do or that lay people do that might help with the antibiotic resistance uh, issue? So I think um, the best thing that uh, people can do is firstly to uh, try and do what they can to prevent themselves from getting sick. Getting sick can lead to getting prescribed an antibiotic, and that's really what we want to stop. So the things that we recommend for prevention of uh, infection really is good hand washing and keeping your immunizations uh, up to date. Um, Of course, you can do all of that and still fall ill. Um, The best thing that we recommend in that uh, scenario is for uh, if you go in to see your doctor, you can discuss what the symptoms are and make an informed decision along with your doctor as to the best uh, type of treatment for you. So if your doctor thinks that you truly do have a bacterial infection and prescribes you an antibiotic, it's fine to go ahead and take that uh, antibiotic. But it's also important if your doctor thinks that you have a viral illness uh, not to ever pressure them to prescribe an antibiotic if it's not not going to be a benefit to you. Is there another, uh, besides a penicillin allergy, are there other antibiotic allergies that people suffer from that are common? Um, So the next most common after penicillin is usually a sulfa allergy. Um, So that might be an allergy to a common antibiotic called Bactrim or uh, related uh, medications. We have uh, antiviral drugs for, as best I can recall, herpes zoster and for the flu. Why don't we have antiviral drugs for other viral illnesses like the common cold, and will we have soon? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, a lot of these viruses change very much year to year. They circulate very commonly and can have uh, changes that mean that a uh, single antiviral medication is unlikely to uh, be able to keep up with all of those changes and be effective. And so we don't uh, have antivirals for common cold or anything like that. But soon we will, and that will help in the overprescribing of antibiotics, right? It may. We'll have to see. I hope so. We've been talking about antibiotics with Mayo Clinic Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Napuni Rajapaksi. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, rethinking the annual exam. And later on in the program, we'll discuss how the cost of health care affects patient decision making. A special welcome to our new affiliate in Anderson, South Carolina, News Talk 1230, WAIM. Do you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. A picnic can be big fun. However, improper handling of the food can mean big trouble in the form of foodborne germs. Before you fill your cooler, check out four tips for safer picnics. Picnic tip number one. When you open the cooler, keep an eye on the clock. The general rule is to have food out only two hours. 
However, on a hot day, 90 and above, you want to limit the time that food is out in that hot weather to one hour. You might even consider a bowl of ice um, and then set your food container in that ice. Um, that can help maintain a cool temperature. Dietitian Kate Jaraski's second tip, pay special attention to proteins. Bacteria-like protein. So keep meat cold until it hits the grill. Then use a meat thermometer to make sure it's cooked to a safe temperature, at least 160 degrees for ground meats and 165 for poultry. Picnic tip number three, shield your sweets, including the ones from Mother Nature. Fruit, with its natural sugars, is going to attract some bugs, so you might want to keep it covered. And number four, when in doubt, throw it out. You don't want anyone to get sick. Good ways to keep your picnic safe. And in other news, let's talk about burns. In summer, many people fire up the grill and enjoy campfires. Those are two places you can get burned. Now, burns can be minor medical problems or life-threatening emergencies. Many people die each year from fire-related burn injuries. Electricity and chemicals also cause severe burns, and scalding liquids are the most common cause of burns for kids. Treatment depends on the location and severity of the injury. Sunburns and small scalds can usually be treated at home. Deep or widespread burns need immediate medical attention. Now, to treat minor burns, follow these steps. Cool the burn with cool water or damp, cool towels. Don't use ice. Remove rings or other tight items from the burned area before swelling starts. Don't break small blisters. Apply moisturizer or aloe vera lotion or gel, and if needed, take an over-the-counter pain reliever. Also, consider a tetanus shot if you're not up to date. Whether your burn is minor or serious, use sunscreen and moisturizer regularly once the wound is healed. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. As health care costs keep going up, and boy are they going up. Patients, providers, insurance companies, and employers, are they're, they're all looking for ways to avoid unnecessary medical tests and procedures. In other words, they're, they're trying to reduce the cost of medical care. We all want to do that. Sure. Now, the American Board of Internal Medicine has come out with a new recommendation called Choosing Wisely. They now advise that if you're healthy and you don't have any symptoms, you don't need a routine medical exam, a routine physical exam, which is heresy, isn't it? Oh, well, <laughs> on the other hand, significant numbers of patients continue to feel that they should have some sort of regular checkup or visit with their doctor. So who needs an annual exam and who doesn't? Here to share information from his workshop, an ounce of prevention is a ton of work. Rethinking the <laughs> annual exam, what a great name, is Mayo Clinic family medicine physician, Dr. John Wilkinson. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Wilkinson. It's good to see you. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Dr. Wilkinson, it is so good to, to see you and uh, hear you talk about this topic. And, and, and I guess we start with, why are you rethinking the annual exam? Well, there's a lot of uh, publicity, as you said, from Choosing Wisely and other sources that say, don't do an annual exam. And, uh, and people are, frankly, confused about this. When you dig beneath the surface, uh, what, what they really say is, don't do unnecessary visits. Don't do unnecessary tests. Don't tell people that they need to come in if they're feeling well, if they don't otherwise want to. 
they also say have a relationship with a primary doctor and uh, and see that person uh, when you do have uh, symptoms. And so I think what what people may hear is don't come in at all or don't come in for uh, on a periodic basis. But it really depends on what your particular needs are. And I assume, though, that you would have, let's say that you're a relatively healthy adult. You really don't have any problems. Shouldn't you at some point come in for a baseline exam? When should uh, an an adult do that? And what tests should they should be performed when they do do it? Well, the way the, the key to living long and living well is a healthy lifestyle. It's not necessarily having tests. There's, there's very, we overestimate the value of the testing and we underestimate the value of the healthy lifestyle. The guidelines would suggest that uh, men somewhere around age 30 should have their cholesterol checked. Women should have their cholesterol checked somewhere around the age of 40. Women should have uh, the usual preventive services. But as far as other testing, other blood tests, there's very few things that really have any particular value or will help us live better or live longer. So are you suggesting that, that for a man, I really don't need to come in until I'm 30 if, if I'm feeling well and have no, basically no symptom? You need to get your blood pressure checked somewhere, somehow. You need to get your uh, annual flu shot, and you need to uh, uh, get other immunizations on a, a prescribed schedule. You need to be sure that you're eating right and eating healthy. You need to uh, get regular exercise. You need to get help if you I know, but when do I need to come see you? A healthy male, first time. You need to come and see me if that's the only way that you can achieve these other things. Well, I can't that's get vaccinations, can I? Well, without you, get them at the dr- you could get them at the drugstore. Oh, okay. Well, I'd rather come see you. I, I'd I'm be ha- I would yeah. be happy to see you. <laughs> yeah. I would be okay. happy to see you. And then for a female, uh, other than the routine gynecologic examinations and pap smear, which is what now, every three years or something, not every year, they ought to, they ought to come in at... 40? But I wouldn't separate those routine gynecologic examinations from, quote-unquote, coming in. They need to come in for those. But but they wouldn't make a special or separate trip outside of those uh, kinds of uh, activities. So... So if you are coming in for a pap smear every three years, come in every three years. Choosing wisely as a as a recommendation or as a way of your medical career, uh, uh, medical care using choosing wisely, kind of butts up against screenings. It doesn't seem like those two things would go in the same conversation. Well, I think they do. I think that that uh, there are screenings that have have been proven to be effective. They may not be as effective as we think they are. And again, healthy lifestyle is much more effective than mm-hmm. than going through the effort of screening. But th- it has its role and, and should be done. But it probably doesn't need to be done any more often than what's re- uh, recommended. So if you come in for a, a physical exam and you do whatever tests you think are appropriate, that's when you would tell the individual, male or female, uh, as long as you're feeling well, I don't need to see you again for blank years. Right? Exactly, exactly. Okay. But the, the the problem is that that what people hear, what all of us hear, is don't come in. We only hear that part of the message. The other part of the message is there's lots of things that need to be done. For instance, there's uh, been recent uh, uh, things uh, in, in the newspaper and in the media about women don't need pelvic examinations. They do, in fact, need 
pap smears. They do, in fact, need testing for sexually transmitted uh, illnesses. And, and for many women and many individuals, they conflate those things into one thing, and all they hear is, don't come in, don't do this. And so it's do the right things on the right schedule. So where did the idea then of an annual exam or a yearly physical come from? That goes back over a century, and it's no wonder that people believe that this is something that's important and the key to good health. Uh, well over a 100 years ago, the public health community was was preaching this. They were trying to find uh, syphilis and tuberculosis and rheumatic uh, heart disease, and, and uh, they were uh, appalled by the number of uh, men that uh, were rejected for military service in World War I and World War II. And... And uh, the uh, organized medicine uh, was preaching this. But it wasn't until about 50 years ago when everybody got insurance that the patients actually came on board. Unfortunately, about the time the patients uh, thought this was a good idea, the medical community started to look at it critically and say, you know, we may not be doing any good and we may be doing some harm. It's interesting that I can remember, and you maybe too, maybe not. It was probably 20 years ago we would get these emails from administration and they would say, if you haven't had your annual physical examination, please go get it. Remember? I absolutely Do you remember, that? remember that. Yeah. And, uh, and many employers to this day uh, believe uh, that, that coming in for an annual exam is uh, a key to good health. But not necessarily, huh? Not necessarily. The key to good health is a healthy lifestyle. You said that uh, there might be some harm that is created or generated because of this. What did you mean by that? Well, Think back uh, uh, for our listeners to their own experience. Many, many people will have had a test and they get a apparently abnormal result and then have to have further tests to follow up on that. We in the medical community view that as a harm. Uh, it, uh, it's questionable whether or not patients view that as a harm. They may view it as, a, uh, as a, a, a evidence of thoroughness. But Anxiety is generated, people get worried, more tests are done, and uh, it may or may not uh, be helpful. It may or may not be the right thing. But lifestyle is the key, though, you said. Absolutely. Yep, we've heard that more than once. If people want to learn more about Choosing Wisely, that organization and the group's efforts, how can they find out more? You can search on choosingwisely.org and uh, all these recommendations from various specialty societies, family doctors, internists, orthopedists, radiologists, will all come up. All right, Rethinking the Annual Exam with Mayo Clinic family physician, Dr. John Wilkinson. Interesting topic. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll discuss how the cost of healthcare is affecting patient decision making. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Tracy, the high cost of medical care, everybody knows about it. Everybody's concerned about it. But even for those who have health insurance, it's keeping some people from going to the doctor. High deductibles and uncertainty about how much it really costs are partly to blame. A recent bank rate money pulse survey found that a quarter, that's 25% of whether the 1,000 people that they surveyed said that they skipped necessary medical care because of the cost. Here to discuss how health care costs affect patient decisions is Dr. Ed Cragen. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Cragen. It's great to see you. Thank you, Ms. It's a privilege and an honor 
to be in this pantheon. <laughs> of All right, first question. <laughs> Cost of medical care in the United States, it has become a huge issue. This is a pandemic, Tom. One of our senior leaders of the Mayo Enterprise took the stage several years ago. This is an iconic healthcare administrator, and he made the comment that until we get sick, we have absolutely no concept of our health insurance. Until we get sick, we have no idea what the bottom line will cost us and our family. And I think the estimates, even uh, once you have retired and you're on Medicare, the estimates for how much it's going to cost you for medical care for the rest of your life, let alone being in a, in a nursing home if you have to go there. I mean, it's it's astronomical. It's, it's, it's five times as much money as most people have saved just to retire. Absolutely. And no one can give you a figure on what that will be. If a couple makes it to 65, they have a 90% chance of making it to 90. So clearly most of us have not planned and don't embrace that the golden years may not be so golden. So the fact that people are skipping necessary medical care because of the cost is not a surprise to you? It is not a surprise. Let me give you an example. Several years ago, I met a gentleman from Wisconsin who owned a mom-and-pop radio television store, the kind you never see anymore. And he had a malignant melanoma on his left calf. It was thick, and there was the worry it could come back. I see him, and I asked him how things were going. He said, fine. On physical exam, in his left groin, there was a baseball-sized nodule the size of a fist. It was tender. It was red. He had a scratch on his leg, and his wife, who had a copy of Family Circle magazine, said, we better get a PET scan. His daughter, who was a nurse, said, no, dad needs a pelvic CT. And there was a medical student from Harvard who was a member of the family, said, no, we need an ultrasound. And the patient said, you know, Doc, you're going to burn through my $10,000 deductible with one stroke of the pen. The only people that ever raise issues of cost are the independent business people who are not part of a group insurance. Otherwise, people are clueless about what this costs, and there's no free lunch. Well, and it's uh, partly because insurance pays for it, and the doctors got no skin in the game. Absolutely. There is no commitment from us. But let me give you an example. Two days ago, I saw a woman from another state who was 70, but she was dead fit, to use a racetrack term. She had advanced lung cancer, had standard therapy, and was not doing well. We shared with her our Mayo experience on a medicine called Pembrolizumab, or Keytruda. This is the Jimmy Carter treatment. And this is the one they advertise on TV, isn't it? Yes, Mm -hmm. advertise on TV. Mm -hmm. So we told the patient and the family, look, we've had experience using this medication. It's not FDA approved in your case, but realistically, the options are limited. So we offered her the treatment, and after two cycles, she had a dramatic response. She felt like a million dollars. That was the good news. The bad news is that the insurance company refused to pay for the medication. The price tag on this medicine is $150,000 a year, $13,000 every three weeks. So we had to abandon the treatment and consider an alternative program because of the wallet biopsy. 
Yeah, and somebody's got to pay for the TV advertising, too. Absolutely. This is part of it. My understanding is that there are something like $900 million spent on direct-to-consumer advertisements. All right, so we've got a problem, obviously. And uh, it's high deductibles, high cost of insurance. What do we do? Where do we go? I mean, are we destined for socialized medicine in this country? I think each of us needs to challenge the healthcare community and say, okay, doc, I'm listening to you. What will this cost? Let me give you another example. Businessman from the Twin Cities was moving his wife's furniture. Two days later, he could not get out of bed because of back pain. The wife, whom I know quite well, insisted on a fancy MRI of his spine, which, of course, they did in another part of the country. I won't mention it, but it was the land of the gophers. And as expected, this showed extensive arthritis. The family practice physician said, okay, see an orthopedic surgeon, see a chiropractor, see a masseuse, see a physical therapist. $20,000 later, the patient's spine problem went away and he felt well. So we need to listen to our providers and follow guidelines and not get indiscriminate studies. You think it's it's very appropriate for patients to say, what is this cost? And you know, you know as well as I do that you and I don't know most of the right. time. And if you don't, and I don't know, our colleagues who are far less insightful and not as motivated certainly will have no idea what these cost. So let me ask the question again. Are we headed to socialized? To me, the only difference between Obamacare and the present proposal is the Obamacare, the federal government pays for it, and, and the federal government is broke. Under Trump's plan, the states are supposed to pay for it, and the states can't pay for it. Right. So really, what's going to happen? I, I, I really, do you know what's, I mean, you don't know what's going to no. happen, but aren't you oh, worried gosh. about it? I thought he knew and I was going to, I was so excited to okay, hear. I mean, there's going to be a single payer. Yeah, abs- or some variety of that. And patients will somehow has to participate in writing that check for their care because the current model is unsustainable. No question about it. And it's, it's unfortunate. I mean, there's an explanation for this. Nobody had any idea we were going to live this long. And that's right. the major problem, yes. isn't it? Because when uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, it was he passed Medicare, right, got yes. that legislation through, the average person in the United States was living to be 67 years old. Yes. Now a male lives uh, average 78 and a female 80. Isn't yes. that pretty close? That's pretty close. But we also need to recognize the pandemic of Alzheimer's dementia. Mm-hmm. Someone is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease every 71 seconds. So do the math, and our communities are not prepared for this Armageddon. Now, how do patients, because we're living so long. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, sorry. How do you recommend that patients say to their doctors, what does this cost? I think one would say to their providers, doctor, can you give me a ballpark figure as to what this will cost? All right. I think we owe them that responsibility. Yeah, and, and I think that's a very reasonable question, and at least where we are, we send them down to the business office, and they get an estimate. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's a tough problem. Are you no saying the rest of it. the country needs to be like Mayo Clinic? Well, always. It kind of sounds like that's what you just said. <laughs> High cost of health care in the United States, Mayo Clinic oncologist and palliative care specialist, Dr. Ed Gregan. Always great to have you on the program. Thanks for coming. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic.
Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.